Welcome back to the Talking Points bonus summer season. We hope you enjoy revisiting all of the beautiful conversations with our season two guests. This season, we're back with another 10 beautiful conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary dancers, choreographers, and artistic directors. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today, I'm speaking with the divine Deborah Brown. Deborah is a First Nations woman, a descendant of the Waikid clan of Badu Island, the Merriam people of Murray Island, and she also has Scottish heritage. Deborah grew up in Brisbane, learning jazz, ballet and tap at her local dance school, while also dancing around the family home learning cultural dance. It was an eye-opener to a world she never dreamt could be her career. But after finishing school, Deborah moved to Sydney, and while working as an usher at the Lyric Theatre, she auditioned for Bangara Dance Theatre and was accepted. It was a love affair that would last 15 years. Deborah was not only a dancer in the company, but a principal muse, travelling the globe and creating works for the company. In this beautifully honest interview, Deborah talks about her early life growing up in Brisbane, auditioning for Bangara, and the first time she met Stephen Page. But Deborah talks about more than that about the importance of culture, the pressure and obligations that come with that, and how she ultimately made the decision to find life after Bangara as both a choreographer and a film director. For our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this episode of Talking Points contains the names of people who have passed. I guess I wanted to start by asking, you know, about your childhood and where you grew up and, you know, what inspired your love of dance? Oh, well, I guess the first inspiration for dance is my mother um, because she's just, she just loves to dance and she loves all forms of dance and um, she brought me up watching uh, musicals and um, she celebrated cultural dance for any time there were any feastings or celebrations. But in terms of your kind of modern day dance, um, I, I grew up in Brisbane and I went to my local ballet school, the Pamela Liretozo School of Dance. And um, we, yeah, I did ballet, tap and jazz and uh, contemporary. Um, that's when contemporary was introduced to me. Um, yeah, and did all the local Estedfords, the Brisbane Estedford, Wynnum Estedford, man, um, what was it, Ipswich and Bean Lee every year. So, yeah, that was kind of my upbringing. I had all of that all year round and then every now and then there was mum's cultural dancing that would come in once or twice a year. Because uh, you have incre- you have really incredible heritage because your mum, is she from Murray Island? Well, yeah, so my grandmother was born on Murray Island and my grandfather was born on Badu Island, which is also where my mother was born. So she's, yeah, she's got the two islands there, your uh, western and eastern islands, Badu and Murray. And then then you explore, we've just been starting to explore our own ancestry as well. And um, we've got a grandfather that's come from Singapore, Malay. Our other grandfather we're thinking is Samoan and how they found their way to the Torres Straits. Yeah. And then my father's Scottish. So there's all that kind of influence and mix in the household. That's beautiful. Yeah, because when I looked it up in the map, it's so far off far north Queensland. It's almost into Papua New Guinea, like as the map goes, that ge- geographically it's so, you know. Well, it's fascinating and I'm only at the, 
I'm only at the tip of the research now because it's been really interesting looking at where that, because we've got that sort of Asian influence coming in, like the Indonesian, Singapore, Malay, Papua, like all the Melanesian area that has that has influenced and um, also shaped the Torres Straits as well as you know your native people there because it was it was a it was a thoroughfare a lot of people crossed those straits between east and west. At what point does your mum's background and cultural dance and Bangara start to to come on you know come in on your radar? Well what was interesting is um I guess I didn't actually think I was going to be a dancer. So I had trained as a dancer for 12 years at my ballet school. And um, and at the end of year 12, it was time to think about a career. And I thought I would have less chance of being a dancer than an actor because I didn't think I had the facility as a dancer. Really? I certain, I, my, my turnout as a as a ballerina, it was only 45 degrees and my leg really struggled getting past 90 degrees. So I thought any kind of commercial dance or a ballet company was just out of the question. I still wanted to be creative. So I studied acting and I was going for auditions and I kept going for musical auditions. That's what my agent would put me forward for. And then there was a advertisement in the newspaper and it was the first time Bangara had held national auditions and I just thought oh why not I'll I seem to be getting picked all the time for casting because of my dance background rather than my singing which Mm -hmm. is very very average (laughs) so (laughs) I thought um why not I'll I'll go to these auditions if anything it's experience and um I felt the shift, I think, in that audition. Um, I remember running into Frances Rings actually the morning of. She must have been going down the wharf to get a coffee because the, the auditions were held at Bangara, which is at the wharf in Sydney, mm-hmm. where Sydney Theatre Company is and Sydney Dance Company. And I ran into her and I was lost. And I said, oh, you are a familiar face because, of course, she was so recognisable. She's the like she was the principal artist of Bangara Dance Theatre. You know, she was the poster girl. I went, oh, you're a familiar face. Do you, can you tell me where to go for the Bangara auditions? And she pointed me in the direction. And I remember going into the audition, which was a little bit like fame because you know it was just a cattle call of dancers, and um, we learnt um, some repertoire from Ochres. And I think once we started doing that, there was a real desire, a, a very strong desire to be part of this company. Mm. Um, I sort of had a little bit more of a, uh, not a laid back attitude, but I, I think I was still being philosophical. It's okay if I don't get this. Mm-hmm. But once we started to learn the repertoire, uh, I really wanted to cling on to it. I didn't want to lose that chance. And um, we had to fill out these forms uh, afterwards. We had callbacks and um, they still had to think about it. So we filled out these forms and there was a question about, have you done any cultural dance? And I realised how valuable learning from mum had been. It was always something Mm -hmm. valuable, but it was always kind of a a sort of separate identity, I think, because you, you navigate through life uh, I guess just trying to survive and find work and and 
your whole goal is to find work so you can be comfortable and have a roof over your head and eat and you don't kind of place things in your early 20s as what has, I guess, what has been valuable. Well, certainly not in my time. I think a lot of early 20-somethings today, they seemed a lot more focused and a lot more aware But I know what you mean. It's like you're trying to, you know, pay your rent and find the next audition. And, you know, it's not about valuing the priorities of your values. But it was interesting filling out that form going, oh, yeah, Uh, you know, I I haven't learned a lot of dances, but I know some and I don't speak my language, but, oh, I've, you know, I've sung it. So it was a kind of interesting moment to, I guess you never have to write that. You, you never write that down. So it was an interesting moment to sort of write down, yeah, I've learned cultural dance because nobody ever had spoken about it too much before. It just happened. Yeah, so that was just part of your upbringing and then all of a sudden you're asked. Yeah, you're going, oh, this might, this is actually going to be a part, this could be a part of, uh, it could be a part of my profession. Uh, I just had never thought that that kind of influence I thought it was just purely personal and purely family. And now that becomes an investment into something that you get to share. And, um, yeah, I think that was a bit of an awakening for me. Wow. And so you were accepted from that cattle call into Bangara? Yeah, yeah. I I was working in the hospitality. I was an usher at um, Star City Casino. So I was ushering. Mama Mia was on at the time. They had a, I remember they had, um, I think, a 12-month residency at the Lyric Theatre mm-hmm. and um, it had only been a few months in and I had a double shift when we auditioned and um, I had to cancel one of the shifts because I didn't realise the audition was going to go for that long and, um, <laughs> and um, it was getting closer to Christmas and I had friends that I worked with asking, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And I was like, no. And I thought we got to something like the 20th of December and I still hadn't heard anything and thought, oh, I haven't got, I, I didn't get in. And, and then I got an email that I hadn't checked because, again, this is 2000, end of 2002 and emails still weren't a strong thing mm. for me. <laughs> MSN Messenger was, you know, this yeah. sort of social platform. <laughs> Um, you don't spend too much time, you know, uh, this is way before iPhones. I think I was still carrying like a Nokia (laughs) (laughs) time. I don't think I checked emails regularly. You're not getting notifications. And there it was sitting in my inbox, um, a congratulations email. I just felt so, I just felt so dumb, (laughs) like thinking oh, no, I haven't been accepted and I had been sitting in the in my inbox for a little while. So you joined Bangara. What is that first moment like walking into the studio with that company? Oh, I don't know what the right word is. I, um, there was a sense of, I guess there was a sense of peace and fear at the same time, perhaps, and did you know of Stephen Page? Yeah, I knew I knew of Stephen and I knew he was so I grew up in the same on the same postcode as Stephen. I went to school with his niece. We were in the same English class. So I, I, I knew, of course I knew of of him and the brothers. So yeah, I hadn't met him. I remember the first day 
meeting Stephen, which was my first day at work, he came in and said hello to the new dancers because there were six of us that joined um, because we we had come into a new year where sadly they had lost Russell the year before. So Stephen Page is the longtime artistic director of Bangara and his younger brother Russell was a dancer with the company. Yeah. And his um, another brother David, the composer. Yeah. So a strange time to join the company then with the passing of yeah. Russell. Mm. It was one of those because I think there was um, a lot of eyes were looking at the company to see how they were going to, how they were going to, I guess, shape. Be, I guess because that relationship between Stephen and his brother Russell as choreographer and muse uh, was so strong. And uh, look, he was he was an icon of dance, and and still is. There, I know of I know of dancers that um, aspired to be him and. Um, key dancers of that company in, in that era and that generation, they had to take a step back and process that. Um, so although Fran held the audition, she wasn't there at the start of the year. She she returned back when we uh, began the production of Bush. But I do remember meeting Stephen for the first time and he said to me, he's just, he's just a charmer and, um, uh, and always up for a laugh and... Um, he said to me, oh, you don't look anything like you do in the video. <laughs> and I still to this day don't know if that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> am I a disappointment or am I <laughs> am I some relief? <laughs> I don't know. Is there relief there? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. We had Frances Rings on this, um, on Talking Points last season, and she had me, um, you know, in laughter as well because when she joined the company, he had said to her, oh, no, you're not actually allowed to be on the stage. You can only just take class with the company. So she really had to earn her spot. So I wonder if that's his kind of shtick to like. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think then- so. I, I, we just got on beautifully. There was always a beautiful, I, I don't know, um, how to explain the, the relationship. And I wonder also if that's a bit of the Mount Cravat humour the you know growing up in the same in the same suburb I, I I don't know if that's that's why you know I was okay I didn't actually I didn't actually die on the spot when he said that I'm like this guy's got a sense of humor I I, I guess I didn't expect that when I when I joined the company and then you know we laughed every day since you know of course there were there were also blood sweat and tears that went along with it but at least there was a there was a healthy amount of laughter too because you were with the company I think 14 years is that right yeah well uh f- 15 so I took a I retired twice oh well, at the start of 2014 I we went over to the Netherlands dance theater and I did my final what I thought was going to be my final performance with them and then I took 2000, the rest of 2014 off, kind of, I guess, searching for what the next chapter should be. And then 2015, I went back to Bangara. It started off as a conversation of, um, would you like to come back and choreograph? We're also shooting Spear at the beginning of the year. It would be great if you could be a part of that. Mm. And oh, and we're also doing Ochres at the end of the year. And you've got the knowledge, you've, you've done Ochres before, and it'd be great to have you 
<laughs> as a part of that. So then the year filled up in 2015 and then along came 2016 and 2017 and I didn't leave. <laughs> so um, then I had a second retirement after that. It was hard to leave. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I sense that from a lot of what people say about Bangara, that it really becomes like a family and that it is hard to leave. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a rare company. I, I don't really think that there are others like it, as, and particularly as a major performing arts company in Australia. Mm. You're obligated culturally. You're also a corporation. That those two worlds, you're, you're sort of you're filling in your duties in these two sort of worlds, and I guess to sort of cope culturally, you you are you just become family, and it's and there's actually blood in there. I mean, when I first joined the company, and the first part of Dirt that Stephen had choreographed on me was a piece called Moth, which was for Bush in 2003, and my dance partner that he created on was Sunny Townsend. Sonny is actually my nephew. Wow. So you go into a company and you're like, I actually literally have physically a relative in this company. And then as we went on, Luke Curry Richardson joined the company and he's a cousin of mine. Juan Aga Blanco, um, after a bit of research, um, I'm told he's my nephew. And then Peggy Missy, I call her auntie. It's literally family that happens within that rehearsal space at the same time as being a professional dance company with your roles as dancers. I think that's what makes it a little difficult to just break away and sever any kind of ties that I think other people in different professions possibly can do. Not all, but I think um, when you kind of jump ship from uh, job to job, uh, you you can kind of let it go, whereas I think it's it's difficult to let go your time with Bangara for that fact that you've built a family. A few people have touched on that before, that cultural responsibility, and you just you just mentioned it then, that comes with Bangara. So it's as you say, it's not just leaving a job, it's also that responsibility that people feel dancing with Bangara. Well, I think it's been a First Nations artist in general or, you know, I can talk about it, about a lot of cultural groups, you end up being responsible for a people, you know. I've often said um, in interviews, I think the most frightening of performances are always the performances where we return to country. If we were performing in Yurikala or on Murray Island, you don't want to let the people down. You don't want to let the communities down. You don't want to let the families down because you're taking their story and you are putting it in this context of this, this sort of Western context, like you're taking old stories and you're putting it in at the Opera House or at QPAC or at um, the Arts Centre Victoria. So when you return to country, you want to make sure that you've honoured that community and you've respected that community and you haven't for want of a better word, you haven't bastardised their stories to fit an audience that need a translation of some sort. Yeah. 
I think you stepped into choreography sort of partway through your time in at Bangara. And I suppose just touching on what you've just said there, you created a work, very well-known work called Ibis. Did you want to talk a bit about that work? Did you feel that um, that pressure, you know, when you you interpreted that story? Oh, yeah. And I still feel it today. I still, um, I think the thing I learned from Ibis is, well, one, oh, hmm, where do I begin? It, it's, the, it's the consultancy and the, and the amount of time you have for consultancy. Um, and I've noticed this with projects that have followed. Consultancy is key. And when you're, when you're got a time limit because you have to deliver a production by a particular time, you have to be economical with your cultural consultancy. And even that can sometimes not feel quite right because there's so much to learn. There's so much to research and, and you only ever feel like you've touched the surface. But what I loved about Ibis, well, one was collaborating with Wanaga because Wanaga and I have this, oh, I don't know, this wonderful brother-sister relationship. That's Wanaga Blanco. Yeah, there's just a bond that I, I'm not, I can't really explain. That was great. The other, I think it was bringing my mother's spirit to the piece as well. Her joy with dance, her joy with culture and food, they were the key things that I wanted to celebrate with Ibis. So that was, I think that experience I felt really nourished by to explore that. But again, it was it was the first major production that I got to do with Bangara. So that set a particular level and now I want to learn more and know more and develop more and create more from, from that. Yeah. I feel like as an audience member, I saw it at Sydney Opera House. It was one of the first works that I saw with Bangara where that day-to-day life was really shown. Um, Ibis is, you know, it's like the, the local store, I suppose. You describe it to people who haven't seen the work and it really was exploring local life, just day-to-day life of, you know, buying food and the interactions of, you know, any community. Well, I think that's what we took from from the research as well. I mean, it was inspired, Stephen, S- Stephen had a, a small seed of, you know, of an idea of why we should do Ibis from the first time we had gone to Murray Island as a return to country for Elmer Chris's piece, Emirate Lou. And he was fascinated by the Ibis store because, you know, it was also uh, a store that uh, stored some amazing seafood. And then then there were other stories that come out of it. Like my dad remembers, you know, when he was there and must have been the 70s and he could still see sardines stocked in the, I think it was called the IIB back then, whereas Murray Island is just surrounded like this amazing cloud ring cloud of sardines circle the island um but you, it was still being stored in the in the actual store itself it is remote and what they get delivered there through uh, what's called sea swift which is um which delivers all the yeah all the stock for for the stores it's it's highly expensive and um i think that's the kind of challenge as well that um, communities face and not just in the Torres Straits I see it whenever I've traveled up to 
uh, Arnhem Land or any other remote communities in any of the other states of the country, you see how the store is a sort of centre point but also it's so costly <laughs> um, and, and you wonder how the communities, I guess, do survive there. But they're, they're all the sorts of questions that, you know, you, you sort of look at, you sort of investigate these things when you're a choreographer and, but you realise what really shines and, and what really shined in the case of Ibis was community and that's what Wanniger and I really wanted to talk about. Longest answer for the shortest. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask about retirement because I think a lot of athletes and dancers really struggle with making that decision and sort of that period that comes next with, you know, you know, it's a bit of a tricky period for some um, when something's been so all-consuming. How is that period once you ultimately left Bangara? I think by the time I had... uh, retired at the end of 2017 I I was jumping into I was jumping into studies I was jumping into doing a a master's degree at um afters the Australian film television radio school so I had something direct to go to I think it might have been fatigue as well after those many years of dancing and and that kind of athleticism I certainly was fatigued and I had jumped into Spinifex gum straight away. So I sort of was very tired and I, I don't think I had a performer's ego anymore. And um, I was quite happy to not be on stage. And if I saw people on stage, I felt at peace with that. Whereas I think perhaps earlier, having retired earlier, there was still something bubbling and it was it still felt quite premature, I think, to have left I didn't know if I had said everything as a dancer. I'm not sure. Coming to the end of my studies and then COVID hits, something reawakened. And I don't think you ever quite put the dancer to sleep. I thought I had. I thought. I love that phrase. I thought she was done. (laughs) But there's certainly, there's certainly desire there that, that doesn't, that doesn't go away and I'm I'm still trying to figure out how long the grieving period is because I expected it, I experienced it and I thought it was almost over but I don't know if a dancer will ever stop grieving that time of their life when they got the opportunity to perform at that level. <laughs> if that period ends, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think so many dancers go through that. How do you ever top that period of your life? Yeah, it's interesting um, and it's an an interesting interesting form of collaboration. It is really, I really believe it's the purest form of collaborating unless you're a midwife or I don't know if you really get to experience that pure kind of connection that you do as a dancer. I miss partnering a lot of my partners. there's a transcendence that that happens on on stage, which again I'm not I, I don't know how to explain explain that experience. Um, but nothing has matched it. I mean, except for perhaps nature. I was in Catherine last year and and about a month ago, and there was a couple of experiences up there when you're alone on a beach those kind of experiences where you're kind of matching nature and yourself 
I think are the only things that I can say are the same type of energy that you get when you're dancing on stage. And so is there anything in the works? I was going to ask, what what does life look like post-Bangara and what's for Deb Brown now? Oh, I know. Well, COVID really threw a spanner in the works there. It certainly made me slow down a lot in terms of ambition and, you know, creative desire and uh, because it's been very much family first and then every now and then I'll, I'll pop away for a, for a small project. So Spinifex Gum is, they have a couple of performances this year. So I'm, I'm sort of helping with the girls there. I've choreographed two new, um, to two new songs that they'll be performing at Byron Bay Blues Fest and down at, um, a collaboration with Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And then later in the year I was I had been working on a project last year called Burumbi Kids, um, which was which will be airing on NITV um, in a few months. And that was a beautiful experience. It's not dance related, but well, kind of it, it, you know, I, I guess because dance and culture are one and the same, particularly out in communities. So Burumbi Kids um is based on these based on these children's books, and um, and it's a it's going to be a ten part series. So, again, that that experience with Bangara and the cultural experience with Bangara really set me up to enter this world. And so, so just looping back to something you said at the beginning, where you on the way to the Bangara audition and you run into Frances Rings. I mean, she's obviously now been named the new artistic director of Bangara. Do you see collaborations in the future? I mean, I assume you two are two are close. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I adore Fran. I think there was a quite an early spark with Fran when I first joined the company. Perhaps even on that first day, you know, I, I felt, I don't know, I just, I warmed to her pretty much immediately. I mean, you look at that smile, how can you not resist? Um, <laughs> I feel very blessed and I carry very deep within me is, um, is the collaborations with Fran, like her as a choreographer and what she drew out of me as a dancer and what she saw in me as a dancer, I feel like I'm getting emotional. Like she just investigated or she, whatever I, I guess I thought could be my weakness, she really tried to, she really brought it out as a strength, I think, as a dancer for me. And um, I don't know, just to build that relationship and to, uh, it's confident, I don't think confidence is the right word, but she certainly shaped something from nothing in me. <laughs> So I'm really excited for her taking this role because I learned so much from her and just felt like um, I could really sing in this space. There's certainly uh, a madness, like you, you go, what are, we do- what are we trying to do here? What, are we- what do you want, friend? And then it turns out to be the most amazing. Like uh, there are times where I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. I thought I was really going to let her down. And then the body clicks and I don't know, the satisfaction you feel when you find something because she won't just take an easy route to, to expressing something, you know. She really, she's, she is a sculptor. That's what's so amazing about her work as well. She really sculpts and 
um, details and looks in different corners of the space that I think normally we don't explore. And just before we go, I just wanted to ask, you know, do you have any advice for people, you know, up and coming dancers, Indigenous dancers, something to hold on to as they're, you know, I suppose beginning their their careers? I think the big message is to be yourself, mm. which is very hard and I'm practising that every day because I even I'm in my early 40s now and I'm still comparing myself, particularly in a, a sort of day and age of, of social media and Instagram and mm. it's very easy to continually compare who you are and what you're doing at the moment and what your voice is. And I would say try try not to do that and just be yourself. If whatever form of dance you're drawn to, don't feel like you have to cater to an expectation. I think that's a huge thing for youngins, yeah. Yeah, don't think that you can't achieve something because there's a particular narrative that's all already in place. So, yeah, I guess that would be be my advice. And also work hard. <laughs> enjoy it, you know, enjoy, and enjoy the work and, and appreciate any moment that you get the opportunity to dance and, and appreciate every moment that you have the, the ability to dance because the body slowly breaks down and responsibilities later take place and you have to make different choices. So while you do have that freedom and while you do have that energy and you do have that spirit really enjoy it and don't take it for granted deborah brown thank you so much for speaking with us today it's just been so incredibly insightful and just wonderful to hear your story so thank you so much no thank you for having me again yeah that's it's just been a pleasure thank you deborah continues to work with companies and dancers choreographing and directing projects all over Australia. She most recently worked with Bangara to bring Terrain back to the Sydney Opera House stage 10 years after it debuted. To work with Deborah or to follow all of her adventures, you can find her on Instagram at abrowndebra. Deborah and I recorded remotely, with Deborah dialing in from Cairns in Queensland on the land of the Gimoy people to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review, Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On our next episode, you'll hear from Dana Stevenson. It all felt like it was unravelling and my body wasn't my own. And then, you know, naturally the doubt really set in. And I thought, oh my gosh, this career, I'm going to lose this career. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.